Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. Alright guys, for today's episode, we're venturing deep into West Texas. And maybe you're thinking we're going to have Ricky Taylor from Ultimarfa Winery back on the show, but we are not. Uh, he did, however, just release a trio of single vineyard Tempranillo bottlings. Definitely check those out and definitely re-listen to episode 6 and 53 to hear about his West Texas winery. So yes, we will be in West Texas, but no, we won't be talking to Ricky. What we're actually going to do is venture into higher ABV territory by speaking with Kate Nye of Marfa Spirit Company. Kate and I attended Tufts University, this small liberal arts school just outside of Boston. While there, Kate studied music theory and international relations. After an international music program took her to France and Austria, she landed in Austin, where she worked as a bartender. Kate entered the alcohol industry on the ground floor and has since worked at every tier of Texas's distribution system. In our conversation, Kate and I talk about the universality of hospitality. So often positions like server and bartender are seen as these like transitory roles, part of like a makeshift career. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately. You know, I just got my grad degree and I definitely was the only one with a hospitality background in that space. And it made me feel really alone at times. And it made me kind of question my career path. But speaking to Kate, really helped reinforce this idea that these customer-facing roles teach valuable skills in salesmanship, empathy, and organization. So Kate and I dug into this concept a little bit. Uh, She zoomed in directly from the distillery where they were in the process of fermenting some molasses for their desert rum. So apologies in advance if there's any background noise, but I think the conversation is really fun. We get into a lot of different areas, wine, rum, sotol. So uh, let's just get after it. Here's Kate. I mean, I'm in the tasting room next to the distillery and we're doing things in the distillery. Can you hear any of that? No, not at the moment. Okay, good. Well, what sort of work's getting done in the distillery at the moment? Distilling the, or bottling you know, or? We're siphoning off fermented molasses. We do open top ferment in pine vats of local molasses that's here in town anyway for the use of cattle ranchers. So what, what do the cattle ranchers use it for? What, what, molasses what? is an important ingredient just for sweetening food. It's added nutrient. You don't have a lot of available, you know, ranching in West Texas is very different than somewhere else that might be maybe is a little bit more verdant. So like you have to supplement. So molasses mm-hmm. is a great supplement then for nourishment. So we might as well just make rum out of local molasses that comes into town by train and we are in an old feed mill. So the train delivers it to the other feed mill that's in town. So really cool full circle story to be making rum oh, out of yeah. molasses and an ex feed mill. And then we actually give the spent dunder. So what's left in the still after distillation, we give it back to the cattle ranchers and they use that dunder to help wean calves off of their moms, they'll spray the dunder on the food that they're trying to get the calves to eat. So it's up and it's more attractive to eat than they'll nurse off their mom less. So totally closed loop system. I love circularity. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah, for sure. So you are currently in Marfa, but when did you move out there? Like when exactly did you make that move? I moved out um, the end of November of last year, beginning of December. Uh, I had been traveling into far west or way west Texas for the past 10 years that I've been living in Texas and 
the draw originally was the national park called Big Ben National Park. There's a state park here, Big Ben uh, Ranch State Park. And those two parks right next to each other, right on the border of Mexico and Texas, were my original desire to be out here. It's beautiful topography. It's a nice hail of a drive out from Austin. It's like a, what, six hour drive, seven hour drive from Austin? Yeah, more even sometimes if you're going deep south towards the border. So loved that experience of driving straight out I-10 into the desert. And that part, that has to be part of it. I mean, if you're willing to do an eight hour drive, that's because you love driving, you love being in the car, listening to music or having the headspace. So I was doing that over holiday weekends whenever I could for the past 10 years. And then had always entertained the idea of what it would be like to live three hours from the nearest airport in the middle of the high desert. And I knew some people that, you know, were doing it. I got to slowly know some folks that live out here full time and thought I could do it. You do have to be a certain type of person to handle the challenges and the remoteness, but it's been now almost a year. So in some ways, maybe the Panini, the the pandemic prepared you for that. Like we all went through various levels of isolation. So then going through that period of self-quarantine, whatever we all went through from maybe March to in Texas anyways, like late April, whenever they reopened things up for us, like that in some ways gave you a taste of what that distance can feel like. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, I was probably one of those people that enjoyed quarantine. I loved the forced stay at home. I found that that was a little bit of the bright side of that period that we all went through is that I got to see my house with sunshine in it when I normally didn't get to. And I think growing up also as an only child, like you need to be prepared for that out here. And you also need to be prepared for the very small village of this place for all of its people to know all of your business as well. Oh, that's got to be tough. That's got to be tricky. Another level of Yeah, the lack of anonymity you have living in a small town of about 1,500 people is is pretty wild coming from a place like Austin or San Antonio, where I was, both of those cities, very different community vibes, lifestyle here. When we, we before we were recording, we talked about kind of the culture shock that you go through living in a place like that, that it's almost like going through a study abroad. Do you remember the first time that culture shock hit you when you were living out there? Was it when you were at the post office picking something up and someone suddenly knew all of your business based on like the mail you were getting or something? Like what happened? Yeah, I, I one of my favorite like solo self activities is I, I've just got a big crush on Italian wine. Uh, I find everything that I drink really comes out of the Italian countryside. Uh, My favorite thing is to find an Italian glass of wine and just a nice bowl of pasta and have myself like a solo dinner. That's just one of my favorite things to do for a night for myself. That is not possible out here. You walk into one of the, you know, two to four dining options that exist on any given night in Marfa. And you will, you know, you won't be alone. People will You'll be socializing from from people that you maybe just know casually to people that you you know this is this is a close friend and you just both happen to be in the same place. So you don't really get you, that 
ability to just be by yourself in public. That was the moment on the culture shock graph of where you hit something brand new in the environment. You're so excited to be somewhere new and different, but then, you know, you, you hit like a low point after a certain amount of time because it's not, it's, it's strange and different. And so then you hit that like downside of being around strange and, and different and not what you're used to. So that was probably the moment where I was like, man, I, I, cannot go have this glass of Nebbiolo and pasta that I want by myself. Plus one here. of those four restaurants you described as a dairy queen. So, <laughs> and the bolognese hits different at the DQ. I mean, yeah, not quite the same. And I hear they have their own podcasts, by the way, the only dairy queen with their own. Really? Podcasts. Wow. <sighs> well, would you, have you listened to an episode of their podcast? What do they cover? No, no, I, I don't know any more about it. It's just a rumor that I, oh heard. man, I got to check it out. That's wild. So um, I remember a couple of the restaurants when I went out to Marfa for Trans Picos Festival a while back. I think one was called Stelina. It was that the name. Yes, of it? Stelina has since reworked into uh, calling itself Margaret's. So yes, it's reopened uh, under a different name, different concept. Got it. I imagine that's also the tricky thing is that it is this kind of remote art district, right? Uh, Marfa itself. And I imagine that the uh, population goes through ebbs and flows where someone comes in. I don't know. Is there a season to Marfa? A lot of it is very weather dependent and then like Marfa programming dependent. We're in the middle of festival season right now. Trans Pecos is about to happen. So big festival of music and love. So that happens out here. Um, the end of September, there's a Marfa Lights Festival over the Labor Day weekend that kicks it all off. And a very art forward festival called Chinati happens in early October. So really that starts drawing people out. It's bearable weather-wise. Like now we have nice below 90 degree days and chilly nights. So the park starts seeing more visitors. But in the spring and perhaps before the monsoon season starts in July and August, there can be some really slow months. There are no festivals. And even this year, there was such a severe drought that the river was dry. So the Rio Grande, the border was dry. There's nothing there. And so the river trips aren't going, there's no one floating there and there's no place to cool off near the park. So tourists then will slow down coming out here and every business in Marfa that's still standing is so dependent on the tourist industry. So if the park isn't attracting people, then business is slow. So, so slow, like June, July, and then people love doing their holidays out here. So through Christmas and spring break, busy seasons for sure, but it can be a dry, long, hot summer. That's got to be a slog when it's that hot, when it's also that isolated. That's got to be tricky. Yes, it absolutely. But that's what Italian red wine is for. Gets you through it. So Yes, that's 100% and a good stock tank pool in the middle of a field. So. Oh, baby. There we go. I love it. For listeners that don't know, you and I went to college together. Not that we knew one another super well in college. I'm rocking my Tufts t-shirt right now. But how did you find yourself in Texas of all places after going to school in Massachusetts? Like, how did you make that move? I was a honorary member of the music department, not officially. Um, I declared international relations as my major, but I spent way more time in Dissler and Granoff, the music buildings on campus than I honestly did in class. I was uh, occasionally skipping class to go play piano uh, as a member of, sorry, as a paid member of the music department. Um, I was accompanying 
a lot of opera or classical art songs singers um, that were music majors, but I was their accompanist throughout the semester. I sang a little bit too. And between singing and piano, that took me to um, France and Austria each summer that I was at Tufts uh, with a company called the Franco-American Vocal Academy. Like nothing beverage related at this point. You're not sipping on Gruner Veltliner uh, while you're in no, Austria? No, I didn't like wine. I was living in France each summer. I did a study abroad in Bordeaux of all places and I did not like wine. A lot has changed. I then asked this Franco-American Vocal Academy that I had spent these summers with if I could work for them. And the job was half the year in France, half the year in Austin, Texas. Uh, that sounded like a dream job to me. So I worked for them for about a year and then made the move sight unseen from you know, where my stuff was in the Northeast between Pennsylvania and Boston and then road trip down to Austin. Saw it for the first time as I was coming in on 290. And that was um, 2013, just uh, just after leaving Texas. Do you remember what that experience was like? Because I remember getting relocated to Texas from San Francisco after being at Tufts. And it was the most weird experience of my life. I just remember being in Dallas, seeing so many billboards, so many just random fucking neon lit restaurants. And it was just the weirdest thing to me. It felt like a foreign place. I don't know what your experience was like. Absolutely. It's this sense of like this city has existed long before I ever set eyes on it. Like there is, there is a culture here. There's a style of life. There's a crowd of people. There are future friends of mine that I will one day figure out how to find like the, the experience of moving someplace when you haven't even seen it before is it's definitely destabilizing. You go through your own period of transition. I think one of the things that I found both in Bordeaux um, and then would find in Austin was the trick to settling into a new city was bartending, was the hospitality industry. And you know, you're getting paid to meet people. You're getting paid to talk to people and learn things about your city. So that was super instrumental. While I was working that day job, coordinating the summer music productions for the Franco-American Vocal Academy, I was at night working a second job and it turned out to be under a master of psalm. So he ran the beverage program and I just started seeing all these hints of what a job in the wine industry could look like and that it didn't necessarily have to be entirely nocturnal, but that there were absolutely roles in the daytime sphere of people that kept this industry moving. So bartending is a way to meet people, as a way to learn a language. In France, I was learning more French at the bar than I ever did attending the study abroad program class. So you were bartending in Bordeaux? Is it just like a lot of Ricard? Like, it, what, what's the situation? It, it, that was possible. Of course, we had to be able to make some pastis. We were, uh, this was an English pub. So the benefit was my super rickety French was very, very basic at the time when I arrived in Bordeaux. It was perfect because it was an English pub environment. My coworkers were all Anglophone. And then the French clientele that was coming in knew to expect a rocky ordering experience linguistically yeah. with the bartender. But then day by day, I could pepper in a couple more words that I had learned earlier that day and come in and practice and use them. So, you know, I started just with numbers like that'll be four euros, please. Mm -hmm. 
and it was just a simple beer bar. So there were no cocktails. It was kind of just cheeky pints. Yes, that's it. And slowly, conversationally, my French started to improve. So not only was it a socially beneficial experience, it was where I learned another language. And I even came back to Tufts and decided to do a little quick master's in French language and lit. And I remember during the entrance process, um, they said, someone said, I don't remember who said this to me, but they said, man, Kate, you speak like a man. (laughs) So this like bar French that I had learned came off very masculine to their ear. And it was unpacking to do to learn how to speak a more polished version of this language. You speak about it in, in retrospect, it's easy to see how beneficial that experience of bartending was. But at the time, like I would imagine it's something that's getting you through the day. It's putting extra beer money in your pocket, but were you intentionally pursuing these bartending things to get yourself out there and meet people? Or it's only through retrospect that you're able to have that perspective. Austin, that definitely served a function. I feel like I had a different foundation of classmates to connect with Erasmus students to connect with in France. So that was something that I can see the benefit after the fact, but for Austin, that was a very intentional choice. I was working a day job and, you know, adding on then bartending hours until close at midnight or one, that was a tough scheduling decision, but it was intentional just to be able to get to know the inside of a a new city. And you mentioned that you were working under a master sommelier in Austin. I believe that's Craig Collins and talking about Italian wine, like that's his bread and butter right there. Do you remember any aha wine moments you had working for him? Any wines that really just like hit different? There was a class that he would run, obviously for training purposes, we would do these food and wine pairings. So Drew Curran was the chef at Arrow, ironically a French wine bar. All the wines that I missed drinking while I was in France now had to sell, unfortunately, but at least I knew how to pronounce their names. So now I'm sort of learning at that point, wow, if I can pronounce the name of a French label of wine with integrity, uh, someone's going to buy it from me. So we sat down um, and did a really beautiful pairing. Of course, this is coming from someone that was like drinking Osti as my gateway into the wine world. So like very sweet wines were like sweet, sweet California Pinot Noirs. So this is where my palate was. But what did it for me, the aha moment that I had was a bottle of Leonetti Merlot. And that was done with some sort of pairing. But the fact that I was tasting a spectrum of like these vanilla caramel hazelnut plus it tasted like a dessert to me it felt like a liquid dessert so on top of it like raisinated some molasses like chocolate covered raisins I was stunned at what was coming out of this glass of wine and it was probably you know catering to my at the time very sweet palate so that was a that was a aha moment in wine for sure at one of these classes where Craig was spoiling us. Like we got to drink some pretty amazing things. I got to see like that balsamic tomato color of what happens when a wine ages, when a red wine spends a lot of time hanging out, like it loses its color and it turns like that beautiful bronze tomato color. And, and to be able to have that experience of someone like him pulling these bottles out of his own collection, corvening them for us was was pretty unique. It's interesting because you were studying French literature in your grad degree at Tufts. You majored in international relations. 
I mean, these are all very cerebral sorts of things. How did that translate to the physicality required to work a bartending job at night after putting in a full day at a desk, you know, from eight to five? This was a little bit of a humbling experience. I remember cleaning floors, mopping floors, um, and thinking about my graduate degree. And (laughs) I thought to myself, you know, what are you doing? The Tufts Alumni Network can really, you know, it can make you examine where you are. We, we've graduated with a lot of very successful people um, that, you know, have a certain, for sure, definition of success, like the doctors and the, and the lawyers. And uh, I remember thinking, like, this is, something's not right here. This shouldn't be right. But at the same time, I'm enjoying it for some reason. I'm seeing like the before and after of a project that I've accomplished with my hands and I'm taking care of a place. And then now looking back, I'm realizing that I was getting to know the industry from the bottom up and that sort of empathy that you can have while selling then to someone that's doing that. So selling wine to a beverage director, to to bartenders, to beverage managers that also have that as the end of every night it works a lot better when you have done it yourself and you understand the hard work, but, and the non cute part and the non romantic part of the wine industry is, is a lot of hard work. So it was a humbling experience that I am so happy that I had. Yeah. I think a lot of people, when they imagine a job in wine, they think it's 90% tasting wine, traveling to foreign places. And in reality, it's, maybe 75% plunging toilet. Yes. From that bartending role, you ended up moving into retail, right? Yeah. I was opening the bar a lot of days and I noticed Craig tasting with different people that were coming in with these rolly bags and they were pulling bottles out of them, putting them on the table and they were acting all nice, all sorts of nice. And then Craig was just sitting there, you know, arms crossed, not saying a lot. And I was very curious about this vibe of a meeting and I noticed yeah okay so there's there's a sales process going on here and who are these people how do they get Craig's time how does Craig decide who to give time to and I eventually started sitting with him to understand the four-tier system at least in Texas so from producer to distributor to a retailer to a bar that's the flow of sales for a bottle of wine and uh, more bottle of spirits So understanding that system with him, um, sitting next to him occasionally opened my eyes to all these other careers that you can have, a wine rep, a a vendor. um, So, you know, selling wine at a distributor, selling wine for a vendor. And Craig really recommended to continue this path of getting to know the industry from the bottom up that I needed to spend time in retail. And luckily there was a shop across the street from Arrow called the Austin Wine Merchant. Um, That store is probably one of the best selections of French wine in particular in the state of Texas and is really, as I've come to learn, an industry epicenter for where not only state, but like on a national level, individuals that are big names flow through those doors. So that was a really amazing place to go work where, you know, yeah, I'm showing up in a hoodie and jeans and boots and filling wholesale spirits orders. So again, not glamorous work at all, getting paid $14 an hour. 
but eventually meeting this network over the course of a couple of years that I was working there that I had still continue to draw on. So the retail benefits, the network that I built while I was there um, from a, from a independent small fine wine shop that also had a robust spirits program. It was very beneficial. I remember a friend of the pod and former guest Lyle Railsbeck. I remember he, when he was working for Kermit Lynch, would always hit up uh, the Austin wine merchant come through. There's a, there's a different sort of relationship though, that you have with a consumer in a retail capacity than you do in an on-premise bartending capacity. I think the easiest one that people recognize, right, is that instant gratification of giving someone a wine to try and they can immediately say, oh, I like this or I don't like it, as opposed to taking that bottle home and you maybe see them again, maybe you don't see them again. I mean, what else beyond that really played into that difference between on-premise and off-premise for you? On-premise you always hear about the pricing differences and the question of why, like, why would I be paying, you know, $14 for a glass of wine when I can get the bottle for 25 um, or, or cheaper um, at a retail store. So, so much of that comes into my answer, which, which is the experience. So in the on-premise, you know, that, that $14 is paying for the colors that you're experiencing, the conversation that you get to have, um, someone else cooking your dinner for you and doing all the dishes. So delivering something just more than a simple purchase of a bottle of wine and experience that they literally go experience off premise. There's a, there's pressure there to, to deliver something that's unique. Um, that someone can go and escape like a transformative escapist experience. You want to make sure that that $14 is well spent. So the experience side of on-premise is something that's super critical beyond just creating a solid wine list that tastes delicious. You want to also deliver a feeling at the same time, rather than just this taste. And that comes into the entire space that that guest is experiencing, not just the wine. But I feel like there's also been a blurring of that on-premise, off-premise dynamic over the past, let's say, four or five years. You have places that are wine shops that also allow you to consume on site. It's this weird thing that's happened over the past five years where that, that price differential isn't as clearly defined as it used to be. And maybe that's also consumers becoming more knowledgeable and no longer requiring the same or no longer expecting the same level of service from their wine bar, let's say, where they're used to just going to a shelf that has a little liquid chalk price on the bottle, grabbing it, bringing it to the bartender and the bartender opening it for them. How have you seen that kind of playoff? Because I know there are places in Austin, there's certainly places in Houston all over the world that have made that change. A big impact of the pandemic that we were noticing uh, when I am spending, when I spent time at Southern Glaciers. So a big impact of the pandemic that I noticed was that the on-premise was even more tasked with delivering that experience because during the pandemic, the consumer became very aware of retail prices with not no opportunity to go out to a restaurant. So they're shopping and they're seeing all their favorite wines. They're realizing what in the world have I been paying this much per glass for when I can just have that same experience at home. So the pandemic has really challenged 
what the on-premise needs to deliver to bring people in the door outside of their homes that they all of a sudden became very comfortable in. It's almost what potentially has led me more into spirits is that making a cocktail in a on-premise environment, a bartender constructing something that's larger than the sum of its parts in the form of a cocktail with a spirits base is a much more challenging thing to replicate as a consumer at home than just buying a bottle of wine and opening it and having a glass. So the distance between the on-premise and the off-premise, I still I feel as much farther in the world of spirits still. We still need our bartenders and mixologists. So we're not that good at home, <laughs> um, but we can absolutely look up information on wines at home and, and buy them on the shelf. And the pandemic has really made the consumer a lot smarter than they were before. And you briefly touched on it there, that, that move from being wine-focused to being more spirits-focused. Did that happen while you were in distribution? or while you were at Austin Wine Merchant? I was spending a lot of time on the wholesale side at Austin Wine Merchant. So I was entirely spirits devoted until someone walked in the door and just needed help knowing the bottles of wine on the shelf. And so at that time I did have my um, level one SOM and eventually went on to do level two SOM and WSET three, but even just a little bit of knowledge was helpful in guiding people through the racks, but really very spirits focused at Austin Wine Merchant. And then moving over to the distributor selling glaciers, I was 100% wine focused the whole time. Dabbled occasionally in spirits whenever I could help sell in a brand that needed some help, but really very wine focused. So this new decision of mine to enter into the vendor world and be spirits focused I'm reaching back to my experiences with Austin Wine Merchant. That was the last time really that I handled spirits, but sort of seeing these shifts in the industry and looking at what's next and what the consumer wants next and still wants, I'm, I am drawn now more into the spirits world. And you're embracing it wholeheartedly. You're cool with it. Like you're happy to set wine to the side for a little bit. A hundred percent not. I miss it like crazy. I miss, I miss absolutely just there's a certain level of romantic, uh, there's a romantic experience with a glass of wine. There's a playful experience with the cocktail. There's a creative experience with a cocktail. I think both are satisfying, but the interdisciplinary aspects of a glass of wine, the language, the culture, the history, how much that glass of wine represents, that it's a really beautiful thing. And cocktails are, forward thinking and creative and they push your palate to flavors you've never had before. And so that that's a whole delightful, but different ball game. So I miss that sentimental side of wine yeah, for sure. You know, if we jump ahead from your time at Southern Glazers to where you are now, I mean, now you're very much on the production side of things, right? You're zooming in with me right now from the distillery itself. And I'm curious, like being there at the source now, how that's changed your relationship to the product. There's a level of learning at this vendor level, but you can't even call it a vendor level. Like we're not only a small business. We're, this is a micro business. You know, we're under 10 employees, but the learning experiences of being at a place where, you know, every bottle counts um, of everyone's role if counting so much so that you might be doing multiple roles, um, questions popping up that you just need to figure out the answer to, that you have no idea how to, where to start on solving this problem, but you just have to try one path. 
um, the unknowns that it has just been a totally different experience from working for a well-oiled machine like a you know, $21 billion company such as Southern Glaciers with thousands of employees where your expectations are very clear. You, you absolutely know where the line exists for a job well done. And then you also therefore know how to exceed expectations. But here, there, there are no lines, there are no boxes. Like everything is so fluid and unpredictable and changes by the minute. And, you know, challenges are very quick to arise, but good things are very slow to construct. So these sort of new challenges of understanding what it takes to operate a micro small business uh, on a, a vendor level, like from the source, it's been a huge learning experience. Like my head's gone through all sorts of shifts from working in one environment like that to working for the absolute other extreme. You were talking about how building relationships is so much a part of this business, whether you're a bartender talking to a guest, you're selling wholesale. I mean, what's that client supplier relationship like on your end now? It's the empathy has always been this common thread, you know, at the distributor, I loved having the empathy of knowing what the end of that person's day was like behind the bar. And now it's important having the empathy for what that distributor's day is like now coming from the vendor perspective, you know, the distributor is first and foremost, a, a fulfillment center an order fulfillment center. They are a shipper and it's something like glaciers, the case counts that they're executing every night, that's the number one priority is deliveries. So handling things that come up, you, you know, you like the out of stocks that happen all the time. Well, thinking about how many cases are going out. Now I see a problem where our product hasn't gotten from the distributor to the wholesaler. So it's not getting to the bar. I have total empathy for the amount of legwork that it takes for these order fulfillment centers to execute these orders from moving product around. There are so many tiers in a state like Texas that I now understand and can sort of, I am trying to be the best kind of vendor that I know a distributor would want. So the empathy level is really critical to have um, coming into a producer, a, a maker type role like this. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure like with each passing role, you look back on what you did in that previous role that would have challenged the things above you or created more problems. You have much more empathy, like you were saying, for what came before. Now it's like being out of that role, you actually have like a far better understanding of what you did well or what you could have done better by being in this new position where you're working with that person. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting place to be. It's a, there, this career path exists for a reason. I had no idea that I was just walking down it, but I think it's a common thing that many people in this industry follow is, you know, you work on premise, you work retail, you move to a distributor, then you move to a vendor. And I think it exists for a reason. It's sort of like a little empathy train where you need to understand everyone else's role in it to be able to do the best work that you can. And when you look back on the work that you did in music now, so far removed from it, like when you look back on it, is there anything that's carried with you to now? So how does music thread into? Yeah. I mean, I was able to see the direct parallel when you were working 
in a bar. And then I was able to see it at Austin Wine Merchant. How did that continue to play a role in your development as a beverage professional later on? I think music has a inherent level of, of psychology, especially coming from what I do, which is primarily accompany singers. And they're leading the charge, but you need to read them. You need to cover up their mistakes. You need to keep up if they skip ahead, slow down if they slow down. And so staying in lockstep with someone and reading what they need you to do, what they need you to deliver, it's a supportive role that is, has been, you know, all of this is sales from bartender to retailer to distributor to vendor. It's all sales, but reading people has, is super critical for anyone in this hospitality or sales industry. You've got to know what they need, what language they speak, how they like to be communicated to what their style is. So accompanying someone on piano is, kind of the same thing. You're there to support their needs and to figure out how you need to follow them. And from a sales perspective, sort of the same thing. You've got to figure out what you have that will work for them. So they've got their their wants. The customer's, you know, always always right. The customer needs what they need. And so you've got to figure out how to deliver what they need. Listen to them, you know, figure out how to go with the grain, not against the grain to become a preferred partner. So uh, all of the psychology that's started in Tufts with like the psych courses and definitely comes out of working collaboratively with someone. So I'm not a solo musician. I'm definitely, I hate playing by myself. A, a solo concert terrifies me, but being on stage with a thousand people in front of me, but playing with someone that's thrilling. That's wonderful. It's beautiful to support someone. It's funny. You were, you use the phrase like the customer is always right. And especially in hospitality, it's about making people feel welcome in your space and doing everything you can to accommodate their needs. But I think, especially when we saw Danny Myers step down from his role within Union Square Hospitality Group, there was this like backlash of sorts to that mentality of the customer being always right. Whether he was the one that really propelled that into the mainstream or not, I think that because of the pandemic, because of various other elements, we've learned that occasionally it is really important to say no. And in a small business, right, like a micro business, knowing when to say no and when not to overextend yourself. I imagine you encounter that all the time. Like, how do you figure out how to be hospitable while still saying no? That's a very interesting challenge that I think we're faced with on a daily basis. So we're a tasting room, we're a distillery, we have an event space. And then of course we're you know, launching in Texas. We launched in Kansas over the summer with e-commerce and other states on the horizon. So we have a lot of people that want a lot from us right now. They're excited about this new business. Uh, even if it's just on the event side, they can't wait to have dinner in our space. And we're, you know, they want us in, Minnesota, and they're so excited to receive our product up there. And there's a lot of people that are thrilled about someone that's making Sotol rum and liqueurs and vodkas and gin in, in the middle of the desert. So the role of saying no right now at this early stage of a business is, I think, inherently connected with 
needing to establish our brand, the brand of hospitality that we want to deliver, the regions that we want to be in. What are the big cities that we want this portfolio to be available in first? Because that really does define then where people experience you for the first time. So the, the first time that someone has Marfa Spirit Coast Sotol is in Austin. They'll always think of Austin when they have that bottle in their home state. So these decisions that we're making very early in the places that we have to say no, that is because we have to restrict what we're becoming. So yes, for sure. Customer's always right is my mindset. I you know grew up in that, but it's very true that you say that for us, saying no is important um, to really preserve our, our slowly formed definition. We have this line, we have seven bottles in the portfolio. And over the past couple of months, I've been working with our Texas market manager and attending sales appointments with her. And it's a hard decision. You know, you want to bring in everything. You want to bring all seven bottles in because you're so excited to share it all with a new customer. But at the same time, you know, you put too many things in front of someone, they won't choose anything. So slowly over the course of many sales appointments in these months where we're figuring out who we are, the Sotol and the rum are really just the two to introduce the portfolio to someone. I've sort of been letting everything else strip away. I would, I would love to show everyone every bottle under the Martha Spirit Co. portfolio, but you do have to restrict your decisions in the interest of building a vibe, building a brand. And brand is what, I've heard this definition, brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. And I think that's really important, like the main focus of what we're all doing in this early stage where we're still under a year old. And you mentioned partnerships, you mentioned tasting rooms, you mentioned events, maybe for listeners that haven't had the chance to try Marfa Spirit Co.'s products, can you give people kind of a vibe check for what they could expect if they come to the tasting room, what sorts of places carry the products and how to best use them if they pick up a bottle? When you roll into Marfa, if you've never been before, you'll be so surprised by how small of a tiny little place it is in the middle of nowhere. Uh, there is a uh, there is a old feed mill um, pretty much downtown that was originally built by the army and that's where we are. So the interior is mostly pine. The bar is constructed of old pine floorboards actually that we just polished down. Outside is corrugated metal. It is industrial. And when you walk in, you can smell the wood. It still smells like a feed mill because you know we're using molasses in the back to make rum. So this bar is small, like 30 seats or less. And then in the back, we've got a rather crammed and soon to expand distillery with a copper pot still and some pine baths made from Mexican pine. So we're fermenting in the back, we're distilling in the back. Uh, the business got started by these three guys with the idea of making Sotol in the Chihuahuan Desert. And that desert is on both sides of the border. So Texas, New Mexico, and then extends south into primarily three states on the other side of the border, Chihuahua, Durango, and Coahuila. And those have received official legal designation for the category of Sotol. But we wanted to, we wanted to make Sotol in the garden of Sotol. So that's what's happening, but ours starts in Mexico and is finished in Marfa. So we have a binational approach to the Sotol that anchors the portfolio, but then we're also making from local plants 
a spirit that is distilled from 100% Sotol. That's also exactly how it's labeled. So the U.S. doesn't yet recognize the category of Sotol the way that it recognizes champagne, tequila, mezcal. Those names are protected in trade treaties. So Sotol is not yet protected in the new NAFTA, the USMCA. So on this side of the border, Texans can make Sotol and call it Sotol. But for our approach, we want to only call Sotol that which starts in Chihuahua with our distiller down there, Jacobo Jaquez. And then we finish it in Marfa. And by that, I mean, we proof it down. So we add Marfa water and we filter it and we make two expressions of it. So a 40% and a 45% ABV expression. One more for cocktails, one more for sipping. So you also asked how to use it. Like Sotol is really what we're known for. Yes, we make rum. That's a really cool full circle story of you know local cattle ranchers needing molasses for their cows. We're making into rum in an old feed mill. But Sotol is primarily what people show up coming through our doors looking to taste for the first time. This is what I see as the next spirit category. Tequila paved the way for mezcal. Now our palates are interested in a little bit of a smoky desert spirit. And Sotol is also roasted. Those plants, Sotol plants are roasted underground before they're fermented and distilled. So there is a smokiness, but it's not as, to me, abrasively smoky as mezcal can get. Sotol is very green, a little bit floral, full of menthol, sage aromas. So complementing that super strong green note in a traditionally sweeter drink like a margarita, it's a great way to have it. It's also like significantly more sustainable, right? So toll as a category versus yeah. agave base. Well, the it can be more sustainable. Um, there are a couple differences between sotol plants and agave plants. Um, they're cousins. Agaves will shoot up one Quixote in their life. And that's the last thing that it does. So that's the propagating stem that comes out from the middle of the plant. And that's the last thing they do. So toll will shoot up multiple ones. So there are several different moments during its life that it will propagate. So first of all, don't harvest when it's propagating. Um, Secondly, through some research that our owners have collaborated on with a PhD from a university in Chihuahua, we've seen that plants that are harvested just a couple inches above ground, leaving the root system intact, they will start sprouting up a new plant. That has huge implications for a category that we're expecting to see take off. So everyone's loving, you know, has loved tequila and mezcal, but those plants were over harvested. Um, and now folks are cultivating um, rather than harvesting wild agave. So Toll is still so young. So there's no one that we know of on either side of the border that is working with cultivated Sotol plants. So now's the moment for someone to really wrap their arms around planting Sotol in anticipation, especially of this category taking off. That's a, there's a lot of concern right now about how to make sure that this category is sustainable and there's definitely opportunity to do it. Hell yeah. Um, before we got into sustainability, you were saying what other cocktail you like to use Sotol in. It said margarita, but there was another one you were going for. A ranch water. They say that the ranch water originated here in far west Texas. And now you can have it on menus in LA and New York, but it all came from far west Texas. Ranchers would just have a pour of tequila. They would squeeze a whole lime on top of it and then top with a sparkling water such as Topo Chico. So for me, I like that for the simplicity of the home bartender. That's very easy to make. Maybe add a touch of simple syrup, 
to take the edge off of this very herbaceous, full of personality spirit that is so tall. So ranch water is the best experience for me. You're not covering up the nuances with sweet. So if you're ready to let go of some of that sugar in your cocktail and you want to just taste something a little bit racier, I love a ranch water. It's also like kind of hydrating. I try to convince myself that it is. (laughs) That's wild. Uh, it's, it's a bummer though, that we're also at the same time seeing all these ready to drink ranch waters enter the market, whether we're post seltzer or not. I don't know whether it's a good or a bad thing for us to be seeing all this canned ranch water in the market. I'm, I see both sides. I think I'm, I'm neutral with it because I love a good ranch water in the middle of nowhere when maybe I don't have the ability to mix up a cocktail. Um, they're so easy to keep cool. Portability is great. So I see that for sure. I mean, you do lose a little bit of an aromatic experience that I love from, you know, the mouth of a glass of wine. When you sip a cocktail, you're also breathing in the garnish and you don't get that out of a can. So they're utilitarian, but I see a practical use for them. And that's definitely contributed to their rise. So it's a very diplomatic answer that leaves it open (laughs) for you guys to do. hundred percent. There may or may not be an RTD in our future. We really don't know, but Uh, we're leaving that opportunity open. That was a great ambiguous answer. That was fantastic. Um, (laughs) Is there anything else you want to let listeners know before I let you go? No, I think, you know, Marfa is an experience if you're local to definitely come have. Um, It's a weird, beautiful an interesting socially place that I don't think there are many places in the U.S. where you can still you know, ha- have to drive so far and to come out here and sort of get lost, um, maybe find yourself at the same time. Uh, so the distillery, the vibe that we have here is this should be your first stop. I, I'm really proud to work here. I love what's being built slowly. Um, and I think there's an opportunity to still to see something that's super young and to experience Marfa before maybe it does get a little overtaken and become something that it's, you know, still you're still you're you are still able to experience the grassroots, the art origins of Marfa now. So before all of the bachelorette parties move from Austin to Marfa, that's you right. can still check out the Chinati, see some Donald Judd. It'll be good. Yep. Awesome. Kate, if the kids want to follow you on social media or learn more about Marfa Spirit Co., what uh, website, social media handles, where do you want to send people? What do you want to plug? I have a handle that's entirely devoted to Marfa Spirit Co., so it's just marfa.kate. So that's where you'll find a lot of stuff that, like, what I'm up to around the distillery, where we're going, what new cocktails and new places you can go drink our stuff. So I would follow and check out updates there and e-commerce is coming this fall. So we'll have uh, bottles available in a lot of different states soon. Hell yeah. Love it. Cool. Kate, thank you so much. See you in Texas. Pleasure to reconnect. Love it.